you would turn in your New Testaments to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is where we'll be for this period of our worship. It's wonderful to be with you this afternoon, and it's my prayer that the things that I prepared for today will be of benefit to you. You know, there are a lot of things that we do that are just very uh, frequent in our lives, uh, very fundamental things, things that sometimes we take for granted, sometimes we just don't think about. And we do those things, and sometimes we've got to stop and remind ourselves of why we're doing what we're doing. Maybe it's your job, and you go to work every day, and it kind of seems mundane, and you get bored with it, maybe frustrated with it. And then you remember that the reason you're doing this is to bring home money to support your family. And that gives you kind of a, a different perspective on it. it. gives you a little more energy, if you will, a little more focus, a little more appreciation for the importance of what you're doing. There are many other examples we could give, but I think that the most important things we need to remember to step back and remember why we're doing what we're doing. For example, why are we studying God's Word this morning? Why do we have a sermon every Lord's Day? Why do we schedule from time to time to have an entire week full of sermons, a sermon each night of a week? Why do we take time out of our busy schedule to gather together and sit at the feet of one who is breaking unto us the bread of life? It's not just a matter of tradition. Though I do think that it's a divine tradition. In Acts 20 and verse 7, when the disciples gathered to break bread, Paul, ready to depart, continued his message until midnight. But even then, they needed to understand, and we need to understand, why is it that they gathered together to hear the preaching of God's Word? Is it a pastime? Is this just something that uh, Billy and, and myself and other preachers of the Gospel simply chose for the fundamental basis of supporting our family, or, or is there something more important at, more important at stake? Is, is this just something that you do to come hear the preaching of God's Word, to come study God's Word, just because you've always done it, just because it's what you were raised to do on the first day of the week? Is this an intellectual exercise? Why are we doing this? Why are we studying God's Word? Well, this is an age-old question that needs to be revisited from time to time because if we forget why we're doing what we're doing, if we forget why we spend time in study of God's Word, in this format, a proclamation of the good tidings of the New Testament, then we're going to start going astray. If we forget the purpose we will not have the intended effect because the intended effect comes with the purpose. I believe that there are sadly too many who have forgotten the purpose of God's Word and studying it and preaching it and, and doing what we do every single Lord's Day. And it's something, even though we may be fully aware of it, that we need to remind ourselves of from time to time. I believe in 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul gives a very good explanation as to the purpose of God's Word and the purpose of proclaiming God's Word, the purpose of studying God's Word as he writes to the young evangelist Timothy, giving him a command to command others not to do certain things, to pursue other things. 
And this first chapter of First Timothy is a pretty fundamental chapter of Scripture that kind of sets us up to further God's will and understand why we do what we do in studying and preaching and listening to the preaching of God's Word. So I want us to notice first throughout this chapter the charge that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy that he would charge others to do. He says in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. We'll pause there for the moment. He's supposed to be in Ephesus preaching the Gospel. And in that work, the Apostle Paul is telling him to tell other Christians, people who have been added to the body of Christ, who evidently were at the very least, as we see in verse 7, fancying themselves as teachers of God's Word, desiring to be teachers, that Timothy was to tell them, don't teach any other doctrine. There is a sound doctrine as we see in verse 10. It's the same doctrine that he tells him that no other doctrine should be taught than this doctrine in verse 3. It's sound doctrine. That word sound is a Greek word translated that is where we get our word hygiene from. And it simply means health. In fact, in 3 John, um, the, the apostle John writes to Gaius and he is showing how he's He's glad to hear of John or Gaius's rather good health, and he hopes that he would prosper spiritually as he has good health physically. And so when we think about sound doctrine, it simply means healthy doctrine. There is a healthy doctrine and there is a unhealthy doctrine. The healthy doctrine is the inspired doctrine, the doctrine given to us by our God. So the Apostle Paul says, tell them don't teach any other doctrine. You can't dabble in other doctrines. You cannot mix the gospel of Christ the doctrine of Christ with some other doctrine, or else it's compromised. Only teach, only preach sound doctrine. And in verse 10, it says sound doctrine, but then that's paralleled in synonymous terms in verse 11 with the glorious gospel. And so the good news is sound doctrine, and sound doctrine is good news. Don't teach any other doctrine. There are a lot of false doctrines in this world. We need to be wary of them. We need to be aware of them. We need to make sure we steer clear of them. We know what they are and we get as far away from them as possible and hold fast to that which is truly healthy for our souls. And we don't know what's healthy for our souls. God tells us what's healthy for our souls. So we don't follow and teach the things which just sound good to us, but the things which are proven to be good to us. We know it. There's a test where we can know, preach and teach no other doctrine. But I want us to notice there, he doesn't just simply state that basically don't teach false doctrine. Teach what is true and what is undefiled, the sound doctrine. He says, nor charge them that they would not, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. The word fables is the translation of the Greek word mythos. And of course, that's where we get our word myth. A fable is simply a fictional story, a tale, fiction, as Strong defines it. And so essentially what some were doing is as they fancied themselves gospel preachers and teachers of the Word of God, they were telling fictional narratives. Now, for what purpose? I don't believe it was just storytelling time. I think that they had a higher purpose in their mind. Those fables were like the Aesop's fables, Aesop's fables that we're familiar with. 
It's a fictional story, but it points to a moral principle. And so with the tortoise and the hare, you you are steady and, and slow and steady wins the race. Don't, don't get arrogant and stop running or you may get beat. And so there's a higher moral principle that is involved. And so what they were doing is they were trying to teach a moral truth. They were trying to guide in spirituality, but they were just simply telling stories. What's the problem with that? He says these give rise to disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. When you're speaking about something that is not based in an indisputable and infallible message, an infallible law, then your word is as good as mine and mine is, is as good as you. We can argue about those things and one is not better than the other. The only true unity is in the infallible Word of God. Don't teach or preach fables. Don't give time or waste your time with useless stories. And another problem that came from this is that they were teaching these fictional stories really, most likely in this context, to appeal to the pagan world. And they would appeal to those Greek mythological stories and show some similarities between them and the gospel. And so you want to talk about love? Well, this mythological story has a tone of love to it. And so you see, it's not really that different from the gospel. And in that way, they would attract the Greeks to the gospel. They would blend these man-made stories with the gospels so that people would be attracted to the gospel of Christ. Now, what's the problem with that? As long as we get them in the building, it's okay, right? As long as we keep them in the seat, it's okay, right? Because the, the, the core principles are the same. But you see, the Apostle Paul dealt with that at length. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he explained that my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words in human wisdom, but were with by demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When the gospel is intermingled with fabricated narratives, men are attracted not to the gospel, but to those stories along with these endless genealogies where they tried to trace back their lineage to certain characters, or perhaps at times they actually made up a name and wove a fable around that name to preach a moral truth. All this does is it gives rise to disputes, senseless and fruitless arguments. It does not further godly edification. The New American Standard Bible renders that phrase, the godly edification, rather than furthering the administration of God by faith. The word administration in the New American Standard Bible or edification in the New King James Version as I'm reading from is the Greek word oikonomia. And it's a compound word from oikos, a house, and namos, a law. And this is what Art and Gingrich define it as, a program of instruction training. And so while edification, a building up of someone's faith, is the product of furthering the house law of God, what Paul is telling Timothy is that these fables and endless genealogies do not further the dispensation of God's instruction. In chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, in verse 15, Paul said, If I am delayed, I write that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. How do we know how to conduct ourselves as Christians in God's house? He tells us through the preaching of the gospel, of sound doctrine. But when we stray away from the gospel and we start telling stories, 
and we start wasting our time with senseless arguments that have no basis in spiritual reality. It does not further God's dispensation of His will toward man. It simply gives rise to disputes. God tells us how to act. God tells us how to be as His children from faith to faith. Romans 1 and verse 17. There is an object that provokes faith in us who read it. And so when that object of faith is not given, the product is not faith in God. It may be faith, but it's not faith in God. It may be faith in some wisdom of man, but it's not faith in the Almighty Creator. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It does no furtherance of God's will. What is God's will? You notice there in verse 5, he shows us what is the purpose of preaching. Don't give heed to fables and endless genealogy. Teach no other doctrine than that sound doctrine, the glorious gospel, verse 10 and verse 11, because the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from sincere faith. Pause there for a moment. What is the purpose of preaching? What is the purpose of teaching? What is the purpose of studying God's Word? Commandment is any commandment of God, His law, the administration of His house law, the training which He's trying to supply us with to be children that are fitting to bear His name. This administration of God, the purpose of preaching is to produce love. Love, of course, as Jesus shows, is keeping the commandments of God. John 14, 15. Or as Jesus answered the scribes and lawyers when they asked, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and mind. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason this is the greatest commandment is because on these two hang all the law and the prophets. Loving God is following His Word. And you cannot follow His Word when the Word is not what the attention is placed upon. But it's not just any love. It's not an amorphous concept. People talk about, I love God, and I show my love toward God in this way. I love God, and you can't judge my actions and say that they're unloving. But if loving God is keeping His commandments, then as He says, that love is from a pure heart. It is untainted with moral or immoral filth. That love is straight. It is righteous. And if you're loving God in that way from a pure heart, then what God is cultivating in you is a good conscience. In Hebrews the ninth chapter in verse 14, it explains that the blood of Jesus purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so in following the gospel, we maintain a good conscience because we don't feel guilty of sin. It's been washed away, and as we follow the path of righteousness, we're loving God out of purity. We can maintain a good conscience. We can lay our heads down at night, Confident that we're in right standing with God. That's the purpose of the commandment. Not so that you feel guilty still of sin, but it's swept under the rug, but it's to keep you out of sin. Maintain a good conscience. That conscience being learned by the gospel of Christ. When someone does what the commandment says, they ensure a good conscience. And that love that is from a pure heart, which is maintained with a good conscience, is unhypocritical or sincere faith. It's faith that follows God at His Word and only His Word. It's faith that follows every bit of God's Word, as James 2 indicates, perfect or complete faith. Not partial obedience and not pretended faith, but sincere faith. That's what we're trying to do. 
If you follow fables and you think you're following God, that's not sincere faith. You may be sincere in your actions, but your actions are not pure. Your actions will not be directed in the path of righteousness, so it's impossible to maintain a conscience that is pure from sin. The only way this occurs is by furthering the administration or the house law, the program of instruction that is given by inspiration of God. His Word produces love that obeys. That love is a heart free from impurities. That cultivates a good conscience. And that's what unhypocritical, sincere faith is all about. But these people that Timothy is charged to go confront, they have strayed from that purpose of the commandment. And they have turned aside to idle talk, verse 6. They desire to be teachers of the law, but they understand neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And so you see, as we began our lesson, sometimes some fundamental things that we do constantly that sometimes become old hat to us start to stray away from what is the old path because we may forget what the whole purpose was at the very beginning. They have strayed, they have left the purpose of the commandment of God desiring to be teachers. They don't even know what they're talking about. They, they think they're teaching God's Word, but they evidently don't even understand the whole purpose of teaching God's Word. How can you understand how to proclaim something if you don't even understand what the purpose of that something is? You see, there's the problem. And so they've strayed from that. And in verse 8, it indicates how that was manifested. How do they not know even what they're talking about and teaching the law? They may be quoting some scriptures. They may be saying some things that are right, but they forget the purpose. And so they're intermingling it with fables. They're giving time to these endless genealogies. They have forgotten the whole purpose of what they're doing. They have been using the law unlawfully. Notice there in verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There are a lot of good things that are not used properly, and so they have a detrimental effect, not a positive effect. It's no different with the gospel. The gospel of Christ preached in its pure and unadulterated form and in the proper way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. The gospel of Christ twisted will destroy a soul. Satan is very good at what he does. They were using the law, but they did not understand the things that they taught or affirmed, so they were using it unlawfully. It was not good. And he tells us what that law is supposed to be for and how to use it lawfully. Knowing this, verse 9, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, the unholy and profane, murders of fathers and murders of mothers, manslayers for fornicators and sodomites and kidnappers for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was, Paul says, committed to my trust. When he says the law is not made for a righteous person, he's using the not but sentence structure. It is not made merely for a righteous person but especially for all of these sinful people in any other sin that he did not list that is contrary to the gospel of Christ. He doesn't have to list them all. We know what they are. The gospel reveals them. The law, in other words, is meant to expose sin because sin kills the soul. 
And in order to revive the soul by the blood of Christ and come out of that life which leads to eternal death, that must be corrected, which leads to hard conversations, which leads to difficult sermons that are preached, which which leads to difficult studies that we go through ourselves as we look inward and investigate whether we are in line with that commandment, whether we are loving God with a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. The law is meant to be taught to the conviction of sin so that men and women can turn from their sin and back to God who gave them that law. And so there's not only positive, there is negative. It's especially made for the unrighteous, for the sinners. It exposes that wrong to direct love. Now Paul gives himself following this as an example of this, I think. He goes on to say in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. You notice there in verse 11, he says it was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. This gospel I sought to destroy at one point in time. But because I did it in good conscience, I wasn't insincere in my motives. God saw me fit to direct that energy toward the gospel's purpose when I was convicted of my sins and convinced of Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. Paul considers himself blessed to be involved in such a work. And so it makes sense then that if anyone is positioned to charge someone not to teach any other doctrine and for Paul to extend that charge to his son in the faith, Timothy, it certainly would be Paul one who was not only entrusted with the gospel, so this is his whole job, but one who considers himself to be the greatest beneficiary of this type of message, of this type of preaching used lawfully, used purposefully, used correctly. Not merely for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. So this is what Paul says. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. I want us to notice a recurring theme here where the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. He says that grace, the grace of God that appears to all men, that brings salvation, Titus 2 and verse 11, it was abundant toward me. And as Titus 2 and verse 11 continues, verse 12 tells us that that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The grace of God, I would suggest to you, covers three general areas. It covers the sacrifice for our sins. It covers the law, the revelation, to give us access into that sacrifice by faith, Romans 5 and verse 2. And it grants us time to obey that gospel, to hear it and obey it and repent of our sins. This grace appeared to him. Certainly, it showed him Jesus is Lord, His death was for his sins. It taught him, though, how to access that great gift. It was exceedingly abundant in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. The the grace that taught him produced faith in Christ. Certainly, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, but remember what Jesus told him, go into the city and it will be told you what you must do. He sent Ananias, a preacher. In Acts, the 22nd chapter, and in verse 10, it's phrased this way. You will be told what is it appointed for you to do. When Ananias preached the gospel to him, Paul was convicted of his sins furthermore and was instructed how to get out of those sins and into the gospel, the grace of God. 
it produced faith in him because he heard the word of God, and it produced that love which keeps God's commandments. Paul, one who is described in verse 15 as a chief among sinners, Christ came to save him. And you can trust that. That's a faithful saying. Notice especially verse 16. Something that touches home for us even more so. For this reason, he says, I obtain mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. When he says me first, it's quite obvious that the Apostle Paul is not saying he was the first convert to the truth. First means foremost in the Greek. He's telling us that as the chief of sinners, the gospel was brought to him by God's will, by his foreknowledge, so that he could be the foremost, the primary, and ultra-powerful example, a pattern of how anyone can be saved. If Paul can be saved, you can be saved. If Paul, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man can be saved, you can be saved. An adulterer can be saved. A murderer can be saved. A blasphemer can be saved. An infidel can be saved. Anyone can be saved if Paul can be saved. That's what he's saying. But how? How was Paul saved? Notice what he says there. The grace of God was exceedingly abundant toward me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The gospel came to him and taught him. And who was Paul? He was a blasphemer. Remember there in verse 9, the law is for the lawless, insubordinate, ungodly sinners, unholy, unprofane. Paul was a blasphemer. The gospel was presented to him, convinced him that what he was doing was blasphemous. He was a persecutor and an insolent man. It was for murderers and manslayers and fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers. It was for one who killed those who followed Christ. How was Paul saved? What is the pattern? Paul was a sinner. The gospel came to him, convicted him of his sins. That's good news. Here's your sins and here's how you can get rid of them. And Paul had faith in that commandment, had faith in the God who gave it, and he obeyed out of love from a pure heart, was given a good conscience, was shown to have sincere faith. The persecutor became then the persecuted. You know, a lot of people will hear that kind of message that the law is not meant, the gospel is not meant to make us feel sorry for our sins, to, to convince us of our sins, but it's, it's meant to show us that our sins don't matter because of what the cross preaches, what it teaches. And they don't like to hear that we have to change, that God expects us to change. By, by God's grace, we can actually change, not just stay in our sins. But this is Paul's reaction to that difficult message that made him a Christian. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do we praise God for being convicted of our sins? Do we praise God that we get to hear a message from God's Word each and every week that tells us what the path of righteousness is? And if we happen to not be on that path, then we can know and get back on it. Caleb prayed, God, show us where we've sinned so that we can repent of those things in so many words. Can't quote them exactly. We've got to praise God for this. This is how God has intended man to be saved, by the exposure of sin for the intended purpose of pointing us back on the path of righteousness 
and forgiving us of those sins. So Paul commences with this need to wage that good warfare. There is a lot at stake. There is sound doctrine being twisted into one sound, unhealthy doctrine. Fables are being chosen over the gospel. Stories are being told over the story of the Son of God and His will He left for mankind. So where Paul charged Timothy to charge others not to teach any other doctrine, he directly charges Timothy, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning them, that by them you may wage the good warfare. I believe the American Standard Version more accurately renders the thought of these words in the Greek. There it says, according to the prophecies which led the way to thee, that by them thou mayest war the good warfare. We, we hear prophecy and we like to think of, of telling the future. So something was told specifically about this individual, Timothy, that would occur in the future, and that's what Paul's talking about. I'm not convinced that's what he's saying. Prophecy is simply inspired teaching. Second Peter chapter 1 at the end of the chapter tells us that. Prophecy came by the will of God as men were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now that inspired teaching of the Old Testament all the way through Paul's writing, it led the way for him to be a Christian, to have hope, and to be preaching this very message which leads others to hope as well. So if you're going to wage the good warfare, the warfare of men's souls, of truth versus error, of charging some, don't teach any other doctrine. Teach that which is healthy. You've got to do it by that standard which brought you to where you were here. He's about to give an example of people who were saved by this same preaching, by this same message, and they strayed from it and made shipwreck of the faith. You don't defend the truth and defend God's purposes by not using His Word. You've got to use those prophecies. In chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, he explained that the Scriptures made him wise for salvation which is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're going to wage this good warfare, you do it by this standard and you maintain this state of mind, having faith and a good conscience. You've got to maintain your trust, your import of attention on God's Word where faith is produced. You cannot turn aside to philosophy and wisdom and empty stories, fables of men. You've got to maintain faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We cannot possibly bring others to the Gospel We cannot possibly save souls. We cannot possibly have ourselves being saved unless we give attention to that which produces faith that saves. In chapter 4 and verse 16, he told Timothy, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine and continue in them and you'll save yourself and those who hear you. But you also must maintain a good conscience. Keep your conscience clean. How do we do that? Stay away from sin. And if we ever fall short and sin, get rid of it. Ask God for forgiveness and turn away from it. Don't turn back to it. If you don't maintain a good conscience, then you're going to be inclined and tempted to compromise the gospel. If I'm in sin and I'm not willing to break free from that sin, I may just be tempted to change the message to make me feel better about what I'm doing. That's the danger. That's what's at stake. Maintain faith in a good conscience. How? Verse 5, by taking heed according to the commandment. Because if you don't, this is what happens. Here's an example. Of whom are Hymenaeus, he says, maintain faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith of separate shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander rejected faith and a good conscience. 
They did not just teach God's Word and they did not just live in accordance with God's Word. Their faith was not faith in God. They rejected that. And they rejected a good conscience where they may be guilty of sin. They weren't willing to make sure that was corrected. They just stayed where they were. And likely their preaching was changed because of it. Because Paul goes on to say that concerning the faith, they have suffered shipwreck. They made shipwreck of the faith, the gospel of Christ. Because they did not have faith, which comes from hearing God's word. So their teaching certainly wasn't in conformity to God's word. They did not maintain a pure conscience. They did not make sure that they were following God. And so that gospel was compromised as they produced it in their preaching. They made shipwreck of the faith. They tore it up. And notice he says they were disciplined. Compare that to 1 Corinthians 5 and some other time. They were delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. You know, some suggest in commentaries that their doctrine was inherently blasphemous in some way or fashion. Like the Gnostic heresy that Christ did not come in the flesh, that would be kind of inherently blasphemous. I want to suggest to you that the word blasphemy as it means to speak slanderously, impiously, or profanely, to injure a a saying that injures any doctrine that is contrary to the sound doctrine, and any message that has the title or or the 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 prefaced nature of being a gospel message, of being a study of the gospel that is not in accordance with the one and only sound doctrine is blasphemous. It's blasphemous to claim that you're following the gospel, that you're preaching the gospel, that you're teaching and studying the gospel and living by the gospel when your life and your teaching, your words, your actions, your thoughts are not in line with the gospel. That's blasphemous. We have no right. That was Hymenaeus and Alexander. They were disciplined to learn not to mess around with the gospel of Christ. There are so many lessons to learn from this. Just consider a few very, very briefly. Touching on some things that we establish in the text. We need to always understand the purpose of what we're doing and preaching and teaching and studying. What is the purpose of the commandment? It's not an intellectual process. It has nothing to do with that. It appeals to our intellect, but it's a spiritual exercise where we're transformed. We change. We were once sinners, now we're saints. That means separate from sin. That's the purpose. We need to know what sin is. We need to know what is false doctrine. We need to know what is God's house law. That's what we're trying to do here. It's not about entertainment. It's not merely a hobby or tradition that we're we're going through, but it produces love toward God from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. So we need to teach and demand only sound doctrine. You know, it's a supply and demand issue. If the demand is for fables, like 2 Timothy 4 says, then the supply will be fables. If the demand is for false doctrine, the supply will be false doctrine. And so it's not just up to Billy and myself and other preachers of the gospel across the landscape of the church to to prepare sermons that are sound doctrine. That will never happen unless there are souls in the seats that want to hear that sound doctrine. Supply and demand issue. We need sound teaching. and We need to demand that. We also need to understand very briefly that the gospel is doctrine. There is a false doctrine that was promoted some time ago about separating the idea of gospel and doctrine to promote unity and diversity, saying that the core gospel, Jesus was died, was buried, was resurrected the third day and ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. We all need to agree on that. That's the gospel. But doctrine is 
things about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, about using the money of the church, so on and so forth. Those are doctrinal matters. We need to agree in the gospel, but we can differ in these areas. But notice in verse 10 and 11, he compares the sound doctrine synonymously with the glorious gospel. The gospel is doctrine and doctrine is gospel. We need to understand that there is war to wage. We are in war. Peace will come afterward. We have peace between God and we have peace between each other, but that doesn't mean there's not turmoil in the world. We need to own up to the fact that we're soldiers in the Lord's army, which means we have to be in the middle of confrontation constantly. And we need to not shy away from it. We need to wage the good warfare. And lastly, we need to maintain faith and a good conscience because if we're not trusting in God's word, if we're not wanting to only hear God's word, and we start straying down the path of sin where our conscience is not clean, the gospel will begin to be compromised. That's both for me and for you, for those who preach and teach, and for those who hear, for those who supply and those who demand. We must maintain faith and a good conscience so the gospel, the message, is not compromised. This is not a game. This is not a hobby. This is not a tradition. This is a life and death situation. Eternal joy or eternal misery. That's what we're doing every time we open the book. That's what's at stake. I hope that this lesson was beneficial to you. And I hope that you can apply it. And I hope that we can be encouraged by it as we seek to live our lives for God. If you would, please bow with me and we'll be dismissed for a short period of time before the next hour of worship. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day you've blessed us with and the ability to come together in health and in safety without fear of molestation from outer forces to worship you and study your word in spirit and in truth. We pray that you would help us to maintain focus throughout this next hour, that we would be doing all things decently and in order to the edification of each other and ultimately to your glory. We thank you so much for your son and his sacrifice for our sins and the hope of heaven we have in him. And it's in his name we pray.